motorcycles, and misfits. Coming to you from the Cycle Garage here in sunny, say that as it's raining, Santa Cruz, California. But hey, the rain is good. Hey everyone, this is Liza and uh, I'm hanging in there. <laughs> I'm just hanging in there. Uh, joining me, co-captain, it's the fabulous <laughs> Miss Emma. Oh, fantastic. What a, what a lovely introduction, darling. And um, here in Monterey County, in Marina, Monterey County to be precise, it is also raining. Um, so I, um, I had a thrilling, I had a thrilling test ride in my El Camino. I just rebuilt the carburetor, gave myself lots more power. Um, and of course I got my foot into it and, um, immediately spun out because the roads are wet. <sighs> so that was thrilling, thrilling. It was a, it was a knicker filling moment. <laughs> you sold your trousers, Emma. What's that? You sold your trousers. Yes, it was a trouser-soiling moment. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, uh, coming to us live from Oregon, it's Bagel. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Looks Trying like, to stay dry up here, too. Looks like you've put a lot of work into your garage. I see a lot of things organized and more space. Yeah, a little bit. I've been trying to get stuff uh, set up. I put the uh, put the shelves up, uh, got all the parts up there, and moved the bikes over on that side. So I've got, got some more room to work with now. Still need to work on some heat, though, in the garage because it is <laughs> mighty cold in here. Yeah, that's what puffy coats are good for. And coming to us from his shed in Santa Cruz is Naked Jim. Hey, I'm doing the best I can these days. Among the living. I'll count that as a plus. <laughs> There's no place I would rather be on a uh, rainy, dreary Sunday, Northern California night. I know. You know what? Um, the weather sucks, but it made me feel better because this was the first day of shutting down the garage for COVID safety. And it was a rainy day, so I don't think anyone would have come. So it made me feel not so bad. Wait, are you guys not liking the present that I sent for Christmas? Ah, <laughs> oh, gee, thanks, I specifically uh, you're broken because, up you know, a little so bit, just here. so you know. We need to work on that Wi-Fi. Oh, oh, in your oh, oh, I have a Christmas joke. I have a Christmas joke. <clears throat> oh my! Just reminded it. So, so Darth Vader goes to Luke, and he says, "Luke, Luke, I know what you're getting for Christmas, Luke." And Skywalker said, how'd you know that, Vader? He said, I felt your presence. Uh, <laughs> that makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Oh, God <laughs> almighty. Is that a euphemism? <laughs> Good Lord. Um, I have one. Uh, why do, doesn't Santa Claus have any children? Why is that? Because it only comes once a year and it's down the chimney. Uh, oh blimey oh my goodness what kind of podcast is this it's a family show oh my it's word. a family show oh my word hey you know what podcast this is this is number 398 and we are on the road to 400 i hope you guys uh enjoyed our guest last week eric buell wasn't that an awesome surprise guest that was cool yeah, what a fascinating guy. Oh. It's amazing how these guys start creating when they're teenagers and they never stop creating. Like right. it seems as long as they're going, they're still inventing stuff. It's amazing. 
But, you know, if you have that mindset, because he's got, you know, he's got the creative brain, but he's also got a solid um, background in business as well. So, you know, it's, you, you never stop. I mean, that is your life. Yeah. The thing I really appreciated most is that he actually showed like the real like frustration at all the business deals that fell fell through that he didn't have control and like you feel you feel more for him because it's not just a business failing you see this man and this idea and this vision that was being um, shut down or, or restricted because of people whose job it is to punch numbers on a calculator you know and or because right. it made yeah it made too much sense like the front brakes right Seems yeah. to make too much sense for everybody, so we're not going to do that. Yeah, and and a lot of egos involved too. It seems that <clears throat> just you know didn't just were, yeah. were interested in just shutting it down. You know. Yeah, but that that was a great interview. I've got um, a great interview scheduled tonight. I'm awesome. so excited. Uh, I'm about to bring our guest in we'll see if if he's there he's he should be there um and i'm so excited because of the bookings i have the next two weeks too bagel i know you should be ex so excited really? um well everyone should be excited but mm -hmm. yes um so i think i mean i'm just gonna say uh it's we're in the middle of this spike in COVID um, just to mark this time in, in, in history right now. And please everyone be safe. And um, if you're going to go ride, because I know a lot of people that we need to ride for, for just mental health. All I'm asking is that you ride at 80%. I don't think that's a big ask. Just ride at 80%. Don't push it, but get out there and ride if you have to. That's my statement. Um, well, yeah. On that point, we had we had discussed about doing an iron butt, possibly like right right after the first of the year. Like, hey, let's just do an iron butt, right? Something to do. Yeah. And we were talking yesterday, I think it was, and it's like, nah, let let's not, let's just wait. Yeah. Uh, let's let's see let's see if our guest is here, shall we? Uh, yes, of course. Ooh, ooh. All right. I'll, I'll start the introduction. Let's see, AMA Grand National Champion. He's in the AMA Hall of Fame, in the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. He's a designer, an innovator, and a movie star. That's right. With us tonight, we have Mert Lowell. Mert, how are you? No way. Yes. <laughs> oh, I'm very good. Thank hey. you. Here I am. Hey, hey Mert. All, all ready to go. Hey, nice to see yeah, you. Yes, so are we. Thank yeah, you this is great. for joining us. Thank you so much for coming on. So um, we there's so much to talk about with you, Mert. Um, I think the place that most people will be familiar with Mert um, is, I mean, who can who can deny the best movie ever made? Right? Do we all agree? On uh, any yeah. Sunday, yeah. I know, Jim, you've got right. the poster up in your shop. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's any argument there. It is. Mert, are you surprised at the longevity of this movie and how popular it is to this day? Well, the interesting thing about that movie is that it's 50 years old and you still enjoy watching it. Yeah. At I enjoyed watching it this morning. It was a rainy morning <laughs> and I flipped it on and the opening credit, the opening credit scene with the kids on the dirt bike when huh. they freeze them in midair. Yeah. That, that's the, oh, one of the yeah. best scenes in movies ever. 
and it just gets better from there. So this, what a surprise, Liza. What a treat. Yeah, I know. Yeah, well, it's all due to uh, Bruce Brown's personality. I mean, he's the one that uh, sparked that thing off and made the people realize what we really have going on in the motorcycle world. Well, actually, I might as well plug because Mert, the most recent movie you've been in, I believe, was released just this year. I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, Dana Brown made a movie on the story of Bruce Brown. It's a biography on Bruce Brown, the making of Endless Summer of On Any Sunday. And uh, I, I forget the name. I think it's it's Bruce Brown or it's uh, do you remember the name of it, Mert? Just I just found out about it. Um, anyway, it's on Vimeo. You can find it there, and uh, it's pretty cool. It it covers like the making of and and uh, uh, everything that Bruce Bowne was doing back in that time. Um, so I recommend going on Vimeo and uh, searching for the Bruce Brown biography, and you will see yeah, you'll cool. see Mert in it. Yeah, an amazing filmmaking, like one of not to get our into the movie or anyway too much, but was uh, just how he rode with you guys across country to know what it was like to drive however many hours you would drive and show up and race, you know, to really get a feel for it. Great filmmaking. Well, one of the great things about that uh, thing is that Bruce was always afraid that it would look like a Hollywood movie, and that's the very thing he did not want it to look like. So uh, he left his home down in Southern California and came up to my house here in San Francisco and got in the van with me and drove with me across the country uh, just so that he'd make sure that it was going to be authentically like it really is. Cool. And, and he that, did a very good job of accomplishing that. That yeah. sounds like a young man's game for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I look back on it. I remember traveling back and forth across the United States six times a year. You know, that's 12 trips across the, the states. And uh, that's a lot of hours of driving. Well, you had those but luxury had hotels. Right? With us, so we couldn't uh, couldn't fly. Yeah, that was a hardcore lifestyle you were living. Uh, just driving, you know, through the night to get to the races. And uh, I've even seen some people who said that you might have been too cheap to get a hotel room. <laughs> well that's that's true the thing is is that we didn't make enough money in those days in fact what we would do early in the in the year would we'd race every friday night at ascot down in los angeles and when the uh, crowds dropped off and the purse dropped off we'd all load up and go east because then we could run every wednesday night in chicago every thursday and friday and saturday night at some local fairgrounds and you wouldn't make much you know 20 to 60 dollars a win maybe but it all added up and that's what we had to do to to make a, a living back then. It's not like the, the paychecks they have today. Yeah, not like the kids these days, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And and they even have better gear and protection. You were probably just had like knee pads and garden gloves on, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. And when the going got rough, I would just put cardboard underneath our uh, leathers to uh, eat up the impacts from the, the rocks and stuff. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, in fact, I even I even went to a lot of trouble with the leather makers to make sure that they used the thinnest leather possible for to save the weight. Wow. Oh my gosh. Wow. Wow. I know I know that was a big thing for you, weight. Um we're you know what? 
I was going to try and go in order from like when you were a young lad up, but you know what? This is just going to be a potluck because there's so much, so many things to talk about, so many things you've done. Let's get right into the weight. You did a lot of things to cut weight on the motorcycles. So what were a lot of the things that you modified to make your bike faster? Well, that probably comes from my bicycle in a career, you know, and that, that weight slowed you down. And even as a youngster, I would take everything off the bicycle, strip it all down and make it as light as possible because that, that was the way I could go a little faster. So I just carried that uh, interest over into the motorcycle and, and continued on with it there. Wow, I can't believe that shaving leathers down makes that big of a difference. But another thing that I found very interesting that you did um, when you were riding the Harleys, that instead of making the engine faster, you detuned it to go faster. Well, yes. Uh, since you mentioned I was riding Harley, I did not start on Harley Davidson. Right. I started on BSA and Triumph. Yep. And uh, in fact, I didn't even like Harley Davidson in the early days, you know, because uh, when I first went to L.A. To, to race from Boise, I'm from Boise, Idaho, and uh, Boise did not have enough racing to suit me. So I thought, well, I got to pack up and go to California. That's where all the racers live. And that's where it really happens. So um, I, I left and, and I rode uh, Ascot Speedway there in, in uh, Los Angeles uh, on a BSA and uh but I was my own mechanic and, and a very young, immature mechanic at that time as well. So I was braking almost every week. And that's what led to the Harley thing is that Dudley Perkins, who was a Harley Davidson dealer up here in San Francisco, why well, uh, he was friends with uh, 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 Roxy Rockwood. And so they introduced me and we got to be friends. And pretty soon why through the year why he offered me a ride on the Harley and I went, no, no, no way. I'm not going to ride a Harley. You know, I'm a BSA guy. <laughs> so, uh, as it turns out, uh, my friends talked me into going with the Harley and that turned out to be the best for my career that, that it could have happened. Well, an interesting thing before you mentioned, he had a mechanic, but you were riding down in Southern California, Dudley's in San Francisco. How did that work out? Well, uh, Dudley Perkins was so involved in it that uh, he had a, a mechanic that worked up here at the local Harley Davidson shop. And uh, that mechanic would be my mechanic. And they'd work on the bike all week and then they'd, they'd truck it down overnight and I would uh, race it Friday night and then they'd truck it back uh, Saturday. And uh, so finally he got to thinking about it. And he says, you know, you're a mechanic. He says, why don't you uh, work on this thing? So I said, you bet I'll do it. So I went to work on the Harley and I would then became the mechanic myself. And this was in the early sixties in about 63, I guess. And, uh, so I not only got a salary for working on the motorcycle, but I took the racetrack winnings home with me as well. So I was able to make a living, uh, then doing it that way. Mud, um, can I ask what kind of Harley it was that you had back then? Say that again. What sort of Harley was it that you were racing back then? It was a KR, which is a 45 cubic inch flathead. Right. 750? And that was the stablemate of the Harley-Davidson uh, racing group at that time. Uh -huh. That's long before we went to the, changed the rules and went to the overhead valve engines. So um, uh, it was actually, it worked out really well because you could rebuild the engine uh, once during the winter and, and uh, uh, once during the summer and you could race it all year round but that's unlike what it is in current day racing where they got to work on them every week we didn't have it that way then we had more time to go racing but 
like I said, what got me into racing that often was uh, when the racing would slow down in California, then we'd all head uh, east and we'd race every every Wednesday night at uh, Chicago and every uh, Thursday, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night, we'd race at some fairgrounds someplace and add all the money up, like I'm saying before there. And that's how I made our living then. Wow. And then everything had to be top secret because whatever you did, whether you made the motorcycle lighter or made it faster or whatever you did, why that was how you earned your money. So everything was secret. Unlike today where everybody talks about everything and you know what everybody's beer ratio is and whatever. We were afraid to ask our competitor even what, what spark plug they were running. You know, it was very, very, uh, very selfish and very singular, very secretive. I'm curious, Mert, are there any uh, secrets that you still hold close to the vest today that you might want to divulge to our, <laughs> our, our sea of listeners? <laughs> well, I'm 80 years old now, so I probably forgot them. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back, though. I want to know about this uh, detuning the engine. So the, so the Harley engine was too fast? Well, uh, only the Sportster, the big Sportster. Mm. Uh, it was an 883. Uh, a sportster and it had too much power and the more power i took out of it why the better traction it would get and the faster i could go with it so i ended up detuning it uh, quite considerably uh to be able to be competitive and i was the first one to uh, win uh, tt races uh, with uh, a more modern day uh, harley uh there's uh, oh, i used to use stroker pistons so the compression would get down way low and uh, I drilled it and lightened it all up so it was lighter. I, I drilled the heads and the cylinders just all full of holes just to save a little bit of weight. And uh, even parts of the engine, why they, they came under uh, scrutiny as well. So it was all a, a self-made uh, development program. Now, something I really um, uh, like about your history, much like Eric Buell, who was on last week, you were designing your own frames and 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 suspension. Um, how did you get into that? Was that just by necessity? Well, uh, pretty much. Uh, I was uh, riding a rigid frame uh, Harley, and <laughs> and I did not like the rough racetracks because some of the racetracks, the only way you could run them was just to uh, to run it wide open and just try to skid over the top of the bumps. And I said, you know, there's got to be a better way to do this. And I, I thought about suspension, and so I was a uh, the first Harley guy to come out and use suspension on, on a flat track racer. And where were you just taking like a regular shocks or did you have to design shocks too? Well, no, in the early days, the shocks were not really readily available yet. So, um, I, I would change the, the existing shocks. I'd change their location so that they'd be like right over the wheel. So the wheel and the shock would be uh, more interacting together. And uh, as time went on, of course, we, we designed and built our own shocks and, and the shock companies got into it and became a whole different deal. Now, nowadays, you can just go pick a shock off the shelf and you'd be in good shape, but not then. They, those parts did not exist. I can't even imagine riding a hardtail at those speeds. I mean, that's it's just crazy. I mean, I just have to ask, were you ever scared? Well everybody's scared to a degree. I mean, you just have your own comfort zone and, and just operate within your own comfort zone, whatever that might be. Uh, you know, some people are comfortable up to 60 mile an hour, some up to 80, some to 120. 
uh, my comfort zone. I was comfortable up to about 140 or 150, and then I started paying attention after that. But uh, nowadays, why well, they're running 200. So it's a different world now than it was then, but the motorcycles are different as well. It's amazing to watch the video of you sliding that rear wheel around, and you look so relaxed and calm. And that bike is just sliding all over the place, but it looks like you just stayed loose and calm and knew it would carry well, you through. I did that so so much, actually, that I was as comfortable sliding sideways at 120 as I would be sitting at my loving room sofa. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's just, it was that comfort zone. Wow. And then, yeah. well, uh, yo, go ahead. Go ahead, Jim. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, because there was also other racing involved back then. And you're always, everyone talks about your flat track racing, but you raced other types of motorcycle, other type of racing. Did you have a preference for one or the other? What was the other racing like for you? Well, I, I did road racing as well. In fact, I have five second place finishes at Road Race Nationals. But since I didn't win one, nobody realizes that I did race a road mm -hmm. race, but I, I did. And uh, probably that was a problem for me because... Uh, back in the early days, we didn't did not have good uh, road race tires yet, and we were sponsored by Goodyear, and they were just learning how to do it. And so we had either 100% traction or, bam, we were on the ground and without any warning in between. But as you can see, the way they ride them nowadays, the tires give you a lot of warning, and you can slide sideways long before it throws you down. So um, I wish I could have raced on on modern day tires that we have today. I because what had happened then is is that I was afraid it was going to throw me down and I never knew when it was going to do it. So that, that uh, made me back off and be a little more reserved than I would have been. Yeah. I love hearing uh, the, the, the stories from the racers from the past, basically make all the co the current racers sound like wusses. <laughs> 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 I mean, you guys are so yeah. hardcore back then. So hardcore. I mean, really uh, well, the type we, of riding we were. See, yeah. exactly. Exactly. But um, I did, you know, TT racing and short track and, and uh, road racing did all, all four disciplines at that time, which you had to run all four in order to gain enough points to get the number one thing. Mm. That's what racing was all about is getting number one because that's the only place that there was any real money in those days. And uh, in fact, uh, I made, I got a thousand dollar bonus when I got number one, $1,000. So Big I thought money. I was on top of the world. <laughs> Big money. Cool. What was the what was the TT racing like? You know, we don't hear much about that. What was the racing? It was the same guys, the same competitors? What was what was that racing like? Well, the big difference, of course, is it's a right and a left hand turn and, and usually a jump. But uh, <clears throat> the equipment is different because then we could use the big motors, the six fifties, uh, BSAs and Triumphs, and, and the seven uh, fifty Harleys, and uh, uh, the. The TT racing was, it was just a different game. And there were some guys like Skip Van Leeuwen that were really excelled about that with their triumphs because the triumphs handled really well in those days. And uh, guys like Skip could ride them and boy, they'd win a lot of races. They were hard to beat. And so I, I got to realize, you know, you know, they're winning and they're doing it because th their motorcycle handles so well. So I'm going to work on my Harley and make it handle like, like the you know, European bikes. Well, it took a bit of time to do that, but I studied uh, frame design and frame geometry and ended up uh, uh, making a lot of changes. And I learned that actually from Ascot Speedway there in LA, because what happened there is the racetrack was a clay surface and it had so much traction 
that uh, any change that you would make, you could feel right away. So you knew when you were making a change, if it helped or it hurt. So the guys there were ahead of me while they were, they were making changes. They would change their head angle and change the amount of trail they used in the wheelbase and that sort of thing. And I, little by little, I learned all of that. But as I learned it, I kept it to myself because that was the way that I made money, you know, was to beat them. So uh, uh, a lot of that stuff was not common knowledge. And finally, uh, I started making frames for myself and, and my uh, mentor at that time, the CR Axtell, he says, you know, you, you could sell these things and uh, make some money. And I said, no, I'm be running against myself. And he says, well, you're going to beat them anyway. <laughs> so he talked me into doing that. And at one time, uh, there was a few years there where every Harley Davidson race on the racetrack came through my hands because I made the stock frame for Harley and I made an aftermarket frame with, with uh, night frames. We were partners. So everyone out there was actually kind of a, a Lawwell uh, replica. That's pretty cool. Hey. Now, let's see. In 69, you're the Grand National Champion. Um, and then I think, Emma, did you say 1970 he had a different award? I think I read somewhere that in 1970, you were the most popular. Was it 69 or 70 yeah. that you got the most popular? Oh, I have a trophy for 1970. Right, so, so most popular rider in 1970. That's great. Yeah, that that was uh, good, but that didn't pay any money. That was just an honor to have. <laughs> well, I know, but there's more, there's more to it than money, you know, Bert. <laughs> not um, back then. Yeah, but yeah. not back then. But, um, you know, we uh, a few months ago we had Wes Cooley on, and Wes was always a fan favorite, and he regularly won you know, the most popular racer at the time. And that meant a great deal to him. So um, that's a nice award to have. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it for sure is. You know, I respect everybody's feelings on that. So that's great. So you've got, uh, you've got a few like famous uh, stories. I want to get to one of them uh, because it involves a prior guest on our show, uh, Jim Rice. And apparently you used him as a speed bump once. Well, yes, we were racing up at uh, Castle Rock, Washington. And let me back up a little bit yeah. here. Uh, I was racing uh, early in that year at Daytona, which is February in those years. And uh, I had a, a flat tire on the rear up yeah. on the big banking. Yeah. So at 150 miles an hour, I, I fell. And uh, I, I was like a rock when you skip it across water. Just boom, boom, boom. And I remember it was silent for three times because I'd, I'd hit the ground and then everything would be silent. That's when I'd bounce up into the air. And then I'd come down, hit the ground and tumble around a bit. And uh, that happened three times before I slowed down enough to be in constant contact with the ground. And uh, my first race back actually happened to be Castle Rock, Washington. And uh, that was a, a TT race. And Jim Rice had fallen on the uh, the first lap, on the, uh, on, on the first lap coming out on, onto the front straightaway. And so he was right in the way. I couldn't do anything. So I hit him. And uh, what happened was my hand slipped off the handlebar and went downwards and got caught between the uh, front forks and the frame. Well, that smashed my hand. And as it, it smashed, why my body is just flying through the air, you know, and so it takes the Elna and puts it on the opposite side of the radius and just twists everything all around. And so when I go into the hospital that night, why the doctor says, well, you know, it's this one is uh, smashed this badly. He says, there's nothing we can do about it. 
So he says, I'll fuse you in the morning and uh, I'll just give you a, a hand that'll just be one bone. So from your knuckles to your elbow, it'll just be one piece. And, oh. and just think overnight how you want it to shape. Do you want it to point or do you want it to hook or what do you want it to do? Mm. And uh, luckily my wife, June, was there and she said, no, we think we'll find another opinion. And uh, the doctor says, well, you can, but you're wasting your time. Well, by the time that, that I left uh, Castle Rock, Washington, and drove to uh, uh, my home here in San Francisco with uh, uh, with Cal Rayburn. I used his motorhome. Why uh, Steve McQueen heard about it, so uh, he called me and he says, "Hey, my doctor's in town doing a seminar. You got to go see him." So uh, I took my X-rays up to his room and he just held my X-rays up to uh, the the light there in the in their lobby. He says, "You know," he says, "Kid," he says, "You got some problems here." And he says, I got a guy in L.A. that's better at this than uh, than me. I, I want you to come and down and see him. So I come back and I call Steve and I says, yeah, I haven't had a bad year. I uh, fell at Daytona and then first race back where I, uh, you know, I, I fell and, and broke my hand again. So I didn't really have any money. I says, I'll just have my local guy do the best that he can with it. And he said, no way. He says that he wouldn't hear of it. He sent me the ticket, had his driver pick me up at the airport took me right straight to the hospital and within hours they were working on it. And uh, in fact, the hand was actually used in a medical journal. The doctor later explained to me what they did. So he opened up the back of the hand and he said, well, this pile of pieces is gonna be this bone, this pile of pieces is gonna be that bone. And he just reconstructed it. And there's a medical seminar that shows exactly how they how they did that. Wow, so, that's amazing. Uh, it it even goes further than that. We further outran all the, the money, of course, the insurance money, which was the AMA license. And I never received a bill. Steve paid for everything. Wow. That's amazing. And I, I saw you make that speech at the AMA Awards, and you used your hand like you would, nothing had ever happened to it. That's the way it is uh, as we speak right now. I can, I can hold it up and show you. Look at that. That's, that's the amazing. hand that was smashed. That's, a, that's incredible. You guys remember when Jocelyn Snow was talking about when she smashed her finger and they had to fuse it. She took in a, a grip, from a motorcycle grip, mm -hmm. and had them fuse it around it so it was shaped for that. <laughs> that really does help, man. You know, when, you get, when you're riding dirt bikes and your elbows are up. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds, it sounds familiar. So uh, let's cover some other great things. Um, there's so much to talk about with you. All right. You, uh, okay, is it true, were you on Evil Knievel's crew? Well, yeah, I prepared his bikes when he did the uh, uh, jumps here at the Cow Palace yeah. in San Francisco. Awesome. Wow. As a matter of fact, uh, in one of the jumps, why he overjumped it, uh, thank you, Jim Beam. You know, I always had to have a nice shot of Jim Beam. <laughs> Race fuel. <laughs> what, it wasn't a suspension setup, we know that. No, no, it wasn't that. So he overjumped. And so he was hurt. He broke a few bones and he stayed here for a week at my house. And uh, I was really happy when he left. He was, he was a headache. He was just <laughs> demanding attention, attention, attention. Said, man, man, you're too much. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Like, like we're, one night we're sitting up at the counter and he's uh, uh, saying, he said, Mert, he says, you're doing the right thing. You're, you're saving your money and you're building your house here and you're doing all of that. And says, I'm, I'm going to start doing the same thing. And it wasn't 10 minutes later, he was on the telephone calling everybody in some other country because he thought it was fun to wake him up out of bed. I mean, he was, he was just out of control all the time. <laughs> oh, it was God. fun to party with. 
Sounds like Liza. He was fun to do that. Yeah. Um, our, our friend Gary Davis, who's been on the show, he had similar stories of receiving phone call in the middle of the night from, from Evil Knievel. Yeah, yeah. Apparently. You no, know, Bob, he, he was a character. And yeah, in fact, the first first time that I really remember meeting him is we were down at, uh, oh, at Corona. We were riding a half mile. And uh, uh, it was a dry, dusty, sunny afternoon, Sunday afternoon. And uh, he walks up to a crowd of us guys that were sitting there in a little huddle. And he says, he says, you guys are crazy. He says, you're riding out here on this hazardous, dusty racetrack. You can't even see where you're going. He says, I'm going to take my motorcycle, jump over cars, and make more money than you guys ever heard of. And we says, oh, get out of here, Bob. You're, you're goofy. You know, we didn't believe him at all, but darned if he didn't do it. So I'm curious, since you were there, do you think you could have done the jump at Cow Palace? Well, I was never a jump, uh, uh, you know, that was not my forte, if you will. Didn't have much exposure to, but it's anything that you uh, you learn how to do. Just like, like I said, skidding sideways at 120 is easy if you do it all the time. <laughs> you know, if, if you just try it from out of the sky blue, clear, why am I going to scare you to death? So, yeah, I, th- I think it's safe to say that it was not the it bike's fault that he crashed. Let's just, let's, let's, no, you're off the no, hook. He just over jumped it. <laughs> you're off the hook. <laughs> um, okay. Do you want to, hey, Emma, do you want to talk a minute because about the BSA and Triumphs? Because yeah, I know you're I'd known for to. the Harley, but that is what you really loved at the beginning. And that's where Emma's heart is, too. You know, well, um, the Gold Star was my favorite motorcycle, but because you could change three parts and make it anything from a cow trailer to a, a full on road racer by changing three that parts. That is true, yeah. The cans, um, exhaust pipe, and the carburetor. Yeah, the, the Gold Star was a very, very special bike. And for people that don't know what a Gold Star is, it's um, well, they came in two versions they came in a 350 single and a 500 single. And it's pretty much as good a engineering as you will ever find in a single cylinder engine, in my opinion. Oh, it was state of the art at the time, for sure. Well, they still make good horsepower now. If you look back at the horsepower it had for what it is, the figures still stack up now. It's still a quick motorcycle. Um, oh, yes. Yeah. Very good. What the problem was is that the BSA was uh, on the verge of going out of business, so they started pulling their help back. And so the only person they were helping was Dick Mann. And right. uh, I certainly was not a Dick Mann at that point. So I didn't have any help from for parts or anything like that. So luckily I worked at a print shop. My, my parents were both uh, college educated and says, you can't just race motorcycles, you gotta have a profession. So, okay, I'm gonna take lithography. So I was gonna run printing presses and and make uh, uh, printing plates and do all that sort of thing, which I did. But uh, uh, that, that didn't make enough money. I finally found when I went to Ascot why uh, I, could, I could make more money on a Friday night flat track race than I could ra- working all week. So it didn't take me too long to quit the printing job and just become a full-time racer. Nice. Now, what about the Triumphs? You know, um, Jim Rice, he raced the Twins and the triples did you did you just do the twin cylinder triumphs or did you i, I just did, you did the twins yeah i did the triumphs on tt's and uh, uh bsa's on on the half mile oh okay very good now 
you had it had a great racing career um but it ended uh you had to stop racing because you had a, an issue with your inner ear is that correct yeah, I got what they call labyrinthitis, which is microscopic amounts of uh, moisture on your uh, labyrinth tubes. And what that does is it delays your, your balance. So you come to the corner, you know where you're supposed to turn, but you know your, your balance is not uh, on tune yet. So, um, you know, it just got too difficult. If I was all alone, I could do okay. But if I had people around me uh, and that noise and everything would, would confuse my ears and then it was very difficult. And I figured, you know, this is just too much trouble. So I stopped racing, but mainly I was not ready to quit racing. I was, I was still, still a flat track racer. So I ran racing teams. Yeah. And that was from uh, 1977 clear up to 90. You had some, uh, some young guys on your team who did okay and had good careers. Wouldn't you say? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Steve Moorhead and uh, what well, was one of my good writers. And uh, Garth Brow was another good one, uh, and Ricky Graham. I mean, uh, just a dozen of those guys all raced for me at one time or another. And uh, did you, even Kenny Roberts raced for me at one. I was going to say, how about Kenny Roberts and Eddie Lawson? Those names. Yeah, they. I built their TT bikes for them uh, for the Houston Astrodome, and uh, Kenny won, and, and Eddie was third. Yeah, they wow. they did okay, nice. I'd say. <laughs> I'd say that's okay. <laughs> they're, it's no, they're no no Mert Law, but they're okay. Turned out all right. Yeah, not bad. So that's great to hear that you didn't uh, give up on it and you stayed with it, much like uh, Wayne Rainey uh, did and, and was running teams as well. Um, but here's yeah, and, yeah, and Kenny did also. You know, after he mm -hmm. quit racing, why uh, all three of us? I mean, we're just diehard motorcycle people, aren't we? Yes, but there's something else in your career and. I actually uh, can relate to this. Now, I don't know if anyone else here knows, but Mert, do you know what a clunker is? Oh, a clunker is a mountain bike. Exactly. Uh, that's uh, that was that was before they were called mountain bikes. In fact, because I made frames for the uh, flat trackers, why uh, Terry Knight and I were talking one night, and he says, "Hey, he says we should make some BMX frames," and because uh, uh, that that's an oncoming big thing at the time. And so I went into my local bicycle shop, the Koski uh, Brothers here in uh, in Tiburon, and I said, I want to make a, a mountain bike. I mean, a, a BMX bike. And they said, oh, no, no, you got to make a mountain bike. Well, I didn't even know what a mountain bike was. Well, at that time, they were called clunkers. And, uh, and that's what actually got me into the uh, Bicycle Hall of Fame was because I was a designer and builder of mountain bikes. I'm the first known assembly line maker of mountain bikes. Wow. Amazing. I saw one of the ads. I think you were on it and it said, would you ride this clunker? I thought it was great. Uh, really. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so and, like yeah, I still I have that poster. Yeah. And here's the thing. A lot of people don't realize, I mean, mountain bikes are so big right now. It's the most common bike out there. So uh, Mert, I grew up in Oakland and in the like, like 1980, I think it was my dad, uh, was following the trend. I, a lot of people don't realize it came from that area. So on Mount Tam, there are these fire roads, Mount Tam up in Marin near you, these fire roads, and people were racing their bikes down their fire roads, much like flat track sliding the rear wheel in the turns. And there were these crazy races. And my dad built oh, me one of these bikes nice. called a clunker. And it's where you take a Schwinn frame. And then he took uh, a 10 speed gearing and put it onto that Schwinn for me and put some big like beach bars on. And 
I had a clunker before like anyone knew what they were really. And so I, I watched the whole mountain bike thing happen and a lot of it just came out of that area. So you were there for that whole thing. Yeah. Well, uh, like I, I'm the first known assembly line maker of mountain bikes. There it is. And that goes back into the late seventies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was starting to make a frame through my partner, Terry Knight there at night frames. And uh, I called it the Lawwell mountain bike. Well, I couldn't get a dealer any place. They said, oh, no, no, no. Nobody rides on the mountains around here. And so I renamed it to a cruiser. It's, so it's the pro cruiser. Mm-hmm. And then because cruisers were in then, well, instantly, almost overnight, I had dealers every place, clear to Hawaii all over um, once I changed the name. So I was just ahead of my time as far as naming it. Now, if you don't have the word mountain in it, why it, it won't sell at all. Yeah. Wow. And you also had you also had some suspension developments with the mountain bikes as well, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. I was up on the hill riding one day and I'm coming down this hill uh, with the full knuckle grip, you know, uh, white hands, uh, scared to death. And I'm going, wait a minute. Uh, I'm only going 20 miles an hour. If I was on my motorcycle, I'd do the same mountain at 40 miles an hour. So it's suspension. I got to make suspension. So um, I said, okay, well, suspension was not new. It's been tried since the 1800s, but but it always had two problems. One is that it was heavier. The other problem is that it it consumed pedal energy when you pedaled it. So I says, well, how can I make a a bicycle that that, uh, has suspension, but it doesn't consume energy? And that's where I came up with uh, my design of the the Lawwell uh, parallelogram. It's a quadrilateral actually. Uh, design that I used for my bicycles and uh, I ended up getting I had uh, I've got a total of seven patents two on uh, front designs and five on rear designs and uh, I uh, I just I, I built those uh, back then yeah it's really cool to wow. trace that um you know, back to this area and to know that you were a part of that. I mean, that's huge. I also love hearing that you're like white knuckling on a bicycle, somebody who's used to defying death, you know, at 140 miles an hour on a motorcycle, but what going down a hill on a bicycle. And you're fearing... miles is, is death defying. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, it all depends on the equipment that you're on, doesn't it? So uh, that again uh, kept me in the in the design uh, end of things, and so a lot of my career has been uh, through design work. I was a, a development uh, writer in, uh, for Harley Davidson for a number of years. That was part of my salary. Is is I helped with them with feedback and and designs, working through my mentor at CRXL there in LA. We did a lot of engine work on that XR750, which is very popular today. And uh, so, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, and uh, it it didn't stop with you. It carried on into your family. And we can do a full circle thing here because your son. Well, yeah, my my son, Joe, he's the the 2002 world downhill champion on mountain bikes. And what did he, who was he sponsored by? What did he ride? Well, he's, he's now managing all of North America Shimano parts. But back then. Shimano is. Wasn't he riding? Shimano is the largest manufacturer of component parts for bicycles. Wasn't he riding? And and he's in charge of all North America. Wasn't he riding a Santa Cruz bike? Yeah. Yeah, but he has Shimano parts. That's where we are. Santa Cruz (laughs) brought a full circle. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. That's good. (laughs) Um, 
so, but that is not where your career ended. You just keep finding something else to do. Much like, uh, again, going back to uh, Eric Buell, um, there's always another another layer deep. And I think that this came from, um, I think that your next career, didn't it start with a friend of yours who had a very bad accident and lost his arm? Well, yes, uh, Chris Dreher was also a Harley Davidson uh, factory team writer and on the, the uh, salary for, for, from Harley, as I was as well. And uh, he was involved in, in a bad accident in Sedalia, Missouri. It's a mile racetrack and it was dusty and it was also used for racing cars. So there was a Armco guard rail around the whole outside of the racetrack for the cars. Well, one night or Sunday actually, he came down down the straightaway. It was so dusty that he didn't see the turn in time, and he turned too late. So he skidded down at well over 100 miles an hour. And so he's skidding along with a motorcycle going one way and his body going another. And these 12 by 12 posts that hold up the uh, the guardrail, why well, uh, he hit one of those? Well, it just took off uh, his left arm oh, uh, completely man. off. He had like four inches of his arm left. Wow. And uh, he broke everything. He broke his hips, broke his legs, ribs, on and on and on. So the doctors told me that night, says, well, there's no chance. Uh, you can call his parents and tell them they can come, but there's no point. And so uh, I called his parents and his parents uh, flew in anyway. And uh, after a long recovery, why uh, Chris rehabilitated and became uh, actually a very fast racer even after uh, he lost his arm. If you go trail riding with him, you better have your race face on him or he'll leave you behind for sure. <laughs> nice. So, and this is something I wanted to go into detail because you're still making these prosthetics? Yeah? Oh, yeah. What happened is, in fact, you can see what I have. I have a, a website. It's uh, mertshands.org. Mm -hmm. And uh, that'll show the hand and what I make. It's it's a two-piece unit. Uh, half of it bolts onto the handlebar. The other half bolts onto an existing uh, prosthetic. And... Uh, uh, it's interesting because Chris was after me for years because he knew that I made a lot of different things. He says, you can make me a hand. I said, I don't know anything about, uh, you know, hands and stuff like that. I can't make that. But uh, my friend Dave Garut, who uh, owns a, a machine shop here in San Rafael called DKG, uh, he and I got together and we came up with this design that uh, we thought, well, well, we'll try this. So I, I put one together. And I sent it out for Chris to ride. And he came back and says, that is the worst thing I ever tried. So from that, I learned your knuckles are here. Your, your wrist is there. Your elbows over here. And if you don't mimic all of those energy points precisely, an amputee will tell you in an instant that this doesn't work. Your brain is hardwired and it knows what's supposed to be there and what's not. Right. So from that, why well, I, I learned a lot about making prosthetic hands. And uh, so I made one. This is way back in 1980. And I made one for him and he had it like 10 years and he's going to, to race meets around the country, uh, invitational things. And uh, he was afraid that he was going to lose it. He lose his hand in uh, traveling. So he says, I want you to make me another hand. Now this is uh, 19, well, this is up to about 1990 now. So in 1990, I called up some prosthetic companies. I said, yeah, I think I'll make some prosthetic hands. And you know what they told me? He says, don't bother. First of all, uh, anybody that lost his hand, and that's the end of the world. He's not going to do anything. He's just going to feel sorry for himself. And if wow. those that are left, there are nobody to want to ride a bicycle or a motorcycle. And I got to think, I said, baloney, they just don't know they can. 
So I went ahead and I made uh, 20 of them and even against their advice said, you're wasting your time. And uh, I made 20, I mean, it took me almost a year probably to get rid of the first 20, but I got over 350 of those things out there now, which wow. that's not a big number for manufacturing, but it's a big number if you're one of those 350 and you get yeah. your life back. And that's, yeah. that's what it does. And that's what I'm so pleased about with that hand is that it gives people their, their life back and they can ride their bicycle and motorcycle again right. or snowmobile or anything with a handlebar. You can be a hang glider if you want. And the thing that's special about these, I just want to give a little more, you know, um, credit to it. Uh, to design something that clamps onto the arm and then clamps onto the handlebar is not going to do it because either if it comes off too easy, you, you know, you're going to crash, you're going to lose control. If it stays on, is permanently clamped and you crash, well, we've already learned from Mert what happens when your hand is stuck to the bike. So you had to make something right. that has the right movement and flexibility, but that also could detach at the right time. Well, thank you for touching on that because that was the problem that Chris had when he'd fall down while the hands that, that, that uh, the prosthetic uh, companies would make him would hold on too good and he'd fall down and drag him down the road. He couldn't get away from it. Yeah. So he says, I got to have something that's going to release. And uh, I think a lot of the credit here comes to uh, uh, Dave Garut there at uh, BKG. I think he had the original idea of, of how to make the disconnect and we perfected it, of course, from there. But now it's kind of like a ski binder in a way. You can go so far and you're like, mm -hmm. it's probably two or 300 times stronger than a regular hand until you get to the, to the exit point. And at that point, then it just uh, releases and lets you out. I, I, and I don't, go ahead. I want to say, was there also some, um, you included some suspicion, suspension work in there as well, I want to say, right? Like as part well, of the prosthetic yeah. arm or potentially as part of the arm part, did you incorporate some suspension well, yeah, there? Well, what, you, what you're alluding to there is I'm developing a, a, a complete prosthetic arm. And the only difference between mine and the regular arm is that the normal elbow uh, joint in a prost typical prosthetic will uh, just blow up if when you hit a big bump or a hole or something, it won't be strong enough to handle the loading. Hmm. So I, I've designed a unit now, which I'm 90% through testing on it now. And uh, it uses a shock absorber. And the shock absorber is, it's a smart shock, like from the bicycle uh, rocks, uh, uh, shocks are, they're making for me. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it, uh, uh, it's, it has a, an accelerometer on it and, and you mount on the handlebar and it, the accelerometer, when it detects that you're going downhill, it will send a shock, a, a signal to the shock. The shock becomes stiff. And now the guy's got two arms to use to go downhill instead of just one. Wow. Oh. That's, That's cool. And have you seen any of these in, in racing? Uh, no, I've, I've just had one guy uh, is testing it for me down in uh, lives in Las Vegas and he, he uses it all the time constantly, but we're still doing some development work on the shock, getting the, the fine line worked out on that. And uh, uh, that, that's making excellent progress. I'll have it available for market within the year. That is cool. And I know that, and I know the, uh, the ball and socket prosthetic, you give a bunch of those away as well, right? Oh yes. Yeah. I, I've done that as well. And the thing that I like about that is it's, it's able to, uh, you know, people start their lives over again. Cause you know, if somebody takes your wheels away from you, you don't like it and they yeah. get your wheels back. You're, you're back in, in good harmony again. So That's awesome. 
I have uh, I have some all right I have some questions for you. It, you're a racer and you hang out with a bunch of racers, right? And I just want to know in your entire racing career, what is the craziest race you've ever been? The, the craziest thing you've ever raced? Cause I know you competitive guys, you're probably racing shopping carts or something crazy. How, did you ever get into something like that? Yeah. Uh, one example was at the Santa Rosa mile. Uh, I finished fourth. And uh, when the race was over, I said, you are the dumbest SOB that ever lived. I couldn't see anything, but I was still running 120 miles an hour. <laughs> and, and I said, I'm, I'm never going to do that again. That was my stupidest thing that I ever did that, that never uh, backfired on me. I got away with that one. Did you, did you ever race rental cars? Oh, that was our most fun thing to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. And what's yeah, this? I remember one time we were up at Kent, Washington, at a road race. Uh, myself, Cal Rayburn, and Roger Raymond, and we're sliding around in this rental car, and uh, we we do what we call these Bonnie and Clydes. And, and what what that was is you'd run down the straightaway and you you put the accelerator wide open and then crank the steering wheel and and turn the car around. Well, then the car would start spinning because you got the, the throttle wide open and the smoke would come up off the tires, you know, as you're smoking, going through it. And when the smoke would settle, you, you would hardly tell which direction to go. But we were doing that one day and, and uh, finally it got to the point where the car wouldn't move anymore. So Bobby Strawman, who was the, uh, uh, the uh, development guy for uh, um, uh, Champion Spark Plugs, he took his rental car and he pushed us back to the rental station. And so I'm driving and I drive it in there and the thing won't, won't go at all. And I said, there's something wrong with the transmission. You probably ought to check it out. And uh, I never heard back from him. <laughs> but I never tried to rent a car from there again either. <laughs> wow. So you've done so yeah, much. We had some crazy things. There's uh, Al Bauman. He was another guy that was uh, uh, crazy that way we'd have a rented car and we'd be down at daytona beach and we'd, we'd run down the beach when you could drive the cars on the beach and they'd have these 55 gallon drums that were trash barrels and the the trick was to get the car going sideways so when you hit the barrel why well, you just flip it up into the air and, and see if you could get it flip in the air the highest <laughs> so we did some pretty crazy things bowling with rental cars all in rental cars well one thing i did that was kind of crazy that not in a rental car. Uh, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, it was it was rained out. So by the time they decided it was rained out, it's a Sunday afternoon. It's about oh, 11 or one o'clock, something eleven noon, I guess, about that. And they said, "Well, we can't have this one. We're going to have to call it off." So Cal Raber and I jumped in his. Uh, uh, he had a hopped-up Chevy V8 in a little Ford van, and uh, so we headed off for California. Now we're in Atlanta, Georgia. Sunday afternoon, and we watched Bonanza Monday night in San Diego. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so we would have a contest to see who could drive the longest without getting under 80 miles an hour, no matter what the condition was. <laughs> <laughs> and pretty soon we started, you know, gradually step by step, we'd keep getting ahead of our time. And we had huge gas tanks, so we always put auxiliary gas tanks in our vans in those days so that we didn't have to make so many stops because uh, we were sort of A to B people. We left at A and we got to B. We didn't want to stop in between. So we had big fuel tanks and uh, and we drove fast. 
I mean, uh, you'd be in jail if you tried something like that today, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't get away with it that easily. So you're somebody who's been around a long time. You've seen racers, you know, greats like Kenny Roberts, and, and you've, you've ridden with uh, Malcolm Smith. I'd like to know, from your opinion, who's the best rider in the world ever? Well, uh, I would have to actually have picked Kenny Roberts really? for that one, because not only did I race with him and against him, but uh, we went trail riding a lot up in the mountains, and the stuff that he would do on on uh, motorcycles up in the woods, going through the, the trails, was just uncanny. I mean, was, you can't get away with that stuff. But uh, he, he was just phenomenal on, on a motorcycle, and uh, he was the best natural talent. And Dick Mann was one of the best uh, learned talents, you know. He's kind of more like me, didn't know exactly how to do everything just right, so he had to learn it. So he went to school and I went to school and we both had a long career. Wow. Now, something we look forward to every year, uh, except for this year is canceled, is going to the Quail Motorcycle Gathering. And you were something I look forward to every year because you're there and I always come over and say hi. Uh, hi. I, so I wanted to thank you for coming out there because I think, isn't that the only event that you do? Yeah, it's the only one I, I do. And I don't think that's going to happen this year. I'm pretty certain that it's it's called off by now. Yeah. Uh, and the real reason for doing that, honestly, was to promote uh, my uh, prosthetic hand. Mm -hmm. And that, that's why I did it. Yeah, this is the last few times that we've actually met have been at the Quail. And so, yeah, I, I think it's really likely. There's no way they're going to um, have it for 2021, but 2022, maybe. Look forward to seeing you then. Well, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm, you know, like I said, I'm 80 years old. I'm kind of tired of doing uh, <laughs> exhibits like that. <laughs> I'm, I'm just curious, are, do you still ride? No, I threaten to, but I never have time. <laughs> Seems like I'm always busy. I do some test rides on my street tracker. You know, uh, yeah. I'll do that. Yeah, yeah, that I've got to do that. That is a beautiful bike. You always bring that to the quail. Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. I, I got a question about that. Um, yeah. So that is, it's a it's a Harley engine in there, right? And well, it starts it starts life as just a stock uh, 1200 cc Sportster right off the mm -hmm. showroom floor. I bring it home and it tear it all apart, of course. And throw everything but the engine cases away. I mean, even the front yeah. forks, I've changed to dual. Uh, everything and the frame, I throw away and make a new frame. Wow. Uh, and as long as I was going to make one, I said, well, you know, what I'm going to do here is I'm going to uh, make an updated version of a street tracker. Instead of having just just plain old street tracker, I'll have a modern one. So I put on my bicycle suspension on the, on a street tracker. So the street tracker has uh, two swing arms, an upper and a lower. And the reason for that is it uh, conserves energy. If you visualize it, the chain is above the lower swing arm. So anytime that you accelerate, it tries to bring the lower arm up, which gives you the squat and away you go. Well, the problem with a bicycle is that uh, uh, if you do that, you only have so much horsepower and you can't waste any, any of that energy compressing the spring. So I got to thinking, I said, well, you know, car racers, they go around corners left and right. They don't leave and lean and dive. How do they do it? And uh, I put together kind of the opposite of what the lower swing arm is. Then I put in the upper swing arm 
just kind of mimics a, a suspension of an automobile. And uh, like a wishbone. Uh, now the opposite is happening. Now the, the power is below it. So it's trying to pull the upper one down and trying to pull the lower one up. They're tied together at the back, can't do any either one. So all the energy goes into forward motion. Very cool. And, and wow. that's where I got some of my bicycle patents. What was from the energy transfer, the energy uh, uh, safeness, I guess. Yeah, I like how you're able to use things from both industries and kind of retrofit them to make it work. Kind of blend it all together. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but also just learning. um, I mean, why do you think it is that your frames are more advanced than what a, you know, a a factory can make? I mean, you're figuring out how to change. uh, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but, but they're a little more complicated and they take more parts. And uh, a lot of this need for the dual swing arm is not as necessary now as it was at one time. At one time, that energy canceling uh, uh, efficiency was, was very important. But now the way they design the, the shock absorbers, why that can be pretty much done by lockouts and stuff. It can be done a lot easier way than having to have all of these parts and pieces and the expense, you know, uh, my design is a little bit expensive. Yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, we have to remember that that's what the, the, the factories are making stuff, uh, to make a profit, not to win a race necessarily. That's, that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's the bottom line? Yeah. Well, I love that you've just been so innovative and, uh, you know, that the, the AMA has, has you know awarded you for that you're in the hall of fame what to you what is your most proudest achievement though well there's probably uh, three things there's uh of course the first time that i won a national which is sacramento 1965 and uh the next thing of course is getting the number one and the third thing was uh being a participant in the film on any sunday so those three are my big highlights for my, my career. Now, did being in the film, did that, um, I mean, obviously it changed your life. It made you more famous, but did it bring in more money? Oh, probably a little bit, but not, not a great deal. Uh, um, Bruce helped us out with expenses and that when we were traveling. When he traveled with me, why well, you know, he'd buy gas and stuff like that. And then he would add uh, money into the, the race purse when he was doing filming. Because the film is a documentary. By uh, by law, you don't have to pay anybody anything on a documentary. So what he did for me was, uh, I mean, he gave me a, a, almost a whole whole new life. You know, all the people that I've met and that I've been around so long, uh, and I'm still still charging. You know, I'm I'm curious, Mert. Y'all, you talked about giving a new life, and you you referenced a little earlier about Steve McQueen helping you out with the hand surgery, and you guys seem to have quite the friendship. I and you have a couple of huge Steve McQueen fans on with you tonight for sure. I got a picture oh, of him God. eating a donut on uh, my wall right here. I'd like to say I'm a bigger <laughs> fan of Harvey Mushman, just so you know. Yeah, we don't, we don't. <laughs> well, you know, it's I, kind I, of I, kind of funny, kind of a, a funny uh, small experience was. The first time when Steve and I met each other, when we just started doing the shooting on any Sunday, we were staying down at Bruce's house to film the desert scenes and the beach scenes. So we go in and Bruce gave Steve and I his kid's room. You know, it's a double bunk bed. So 
um, I'm little, I got on top and Steve was on the bottom and he walks into the room and he, he looks all over the room and all there was was pictures of myself and Dick Mann and, and Malcolm Smith, all these other motorcycle guys. And he comes out and he says, don't your kids ever go to the movies? He says, I'm a movie star. There should be some movie pictures up here. Not a one. It was all motorcycles. Yeah, I would think you and Steve had some pretty good times together. Well, you know, one thing that is an experience that we were talking one day, and this is after my operation, we we're out in his, in his backyard there. I, I, I would stay at his house when I had operations and uh, we we're out in the driveway talking one day and he says, Marty says, you're the luckiest guy I know. And I said, well, what are you talking about? So you're a movie star. I'm not lucky. And he said, well, he says, you got number one. And he says, they can never take that away from you. I'm never number one. I'm whoever the actor is that I'm supposed to portray. And he felt really hollow about that. He never felt that he made the, the achievement himself. He felt like he was only being an actor, being somebody else. Hmm. That's amazing. Now, and I know the movie was a documentary, but there were some scenes that were staged. There's one in particular that gets a huge laugh in the movie. And that's when uh, you and Malcolm are riding across a river and, and drench Steve. <laughs> Yeah, we did that three times. <laughs> Bruce just couldn't get it right for some reason. Yeah, we just had to get it just right, you know, with the waves going just the right place and whatever. That was actually filmed on Bruce's ranch there and down in the, uh, well, I've got the name of the town now down there by, uh, not Gaviota, Gaviota's where he moved to, but uh, down in the Southern California mm -hmm. by, by Dana Point. Mm -hmm. It looks nice. like so much fun. So is, is there anyone uh, that you've met in your life that you were starstruck to meet? Because you've met some big names out there. Oh, I, I was in awe of all kinds of people in the early days. Dick Mann was one. Yeah. Uh, Al Gunter was another. Uh, you know, so, the, yeah, I had a lot of uh, race heroes back in the day. Eugene Thiessen out of Eugene, Oregon, was actually my biggest hero in the early days. Uh, he was the BSA factory rider, and I was riding – BSA for the local uh, BSA dealer there in Boise. And uh, I was riding scrambles, motocross now, but we called them scrambles then. And uh, I rode uh, for him. He, he furnished me the equipment. But every once a year, uh, they, uh, they'd have one professional race there at the Owyhee Motorcycle Club in Boise. It was a TT race. And uh, uh, <clears throat> the professional racers would come into town and Bob Budshot was one of those, but Eugene Thiessen was uh, my hero, mainly because he's riding BSA, and uh, I loved BSA Gold Stars at the time, and he'd usually win the race on a Gold Star, and uh, I came to win the race uh, in later years, but on a XR750, and on a Harley, not on a BSA, but that track doesn't exist anymore, you know, the world does change. Yeah. Well, it sounds like Harley, they took care of you, and that's really what you needed. <clears throat> well, one, one high thing I will have to say about Harley is, you know, some years I had, I really didn't ride all that good. I, you know, I wasn't on the bubble, so to speak. And, uh, but they never, they never cut me on the salary. I always had the same salary year after year, whether I rode good or not. So they really stood by me good. And I was with them for, what, 13 years. Yeah, so I want to give them credit uh, I mean, they, they, they get by. kudos for sticking by me. Yeah. 
Now, then I've always been a Harley guy, so I guess vice versa. I'm sticking up for them too, aren't I? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, you just uh, have to completely re- rebuild the motorcycle. So, that's all. Someone needs to stick up <laughs> up for them after talking to Eric Buell last week. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Did you hear that uh, BSA may be making a comeback? No, I. Uh, you know, I think I might have seen some little blurb on Facebook or something about that, but nothing official I've not even seen. As an electric motorcycle. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you well, think... I hope to do a better job than Harley's doing on, the, on their electric. Ooh, shots fired. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty high on the electric. Are thing, you? You know, I, I like the electric. Yeah. Oh, cool. Which ones have you tried? Uh, the only one that I've actually ridden is the uh, Alpha. The Alta, oh yeah, that's the Alta. amazing bike. Yeah, and thank you, oh, Harley. Yeah. I, once I rode again. it for a little while. Uh, Dorstein uh, let me ride it, and, and they were they were nice to me because it's a motocross bike. They put uh, street tires on it so I could ride it on the street mm-hmm. in there in San Francisco. And when I came back, I said, you know, I'm never going to buy a motor vehicle again. It would be an electric motorcycle. Cool. That yeah. was a quick bike too, wasn't it? It was very fast. Yeah. Yeah, that's a bike that can put the fear in you. Well, we actually saw that race up in Portland, didn't we? They threw that out on the track, uh, Mm -hmm. that dirt track up in Portland after the races were over. And it was ripping until it got, it would come out of the turn, hit the straightaway and lose traction just about every time. But up until that point, it was fast. Oh, yeah. Well, what they needed is my bicycle frame. That'll give them the attraction that they need. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. As a matter of fact, I did talk to Dorstein about that. And uh, he's waiting for me to get back to him now because I I think my design of the uh, the dual swing arm would be perfect for the electric bike, and the reason for that is because with the upper swing arm, all the energy goes high on the frame, so it does not like to do wheelies, and that's the problem. Mm-hmm. If you tune an electric bike back to where it where it uh, is easy to ride, then it doesn't mm-hmm. have the power that you want. And, so and if it's con- two birds with one stone, I think. Yeah, and if it's converting, so we've the- talked about it, but we haven't come to any kind of a an agreement or anything yeah and if it's converting that power into forward motion that kind of efficiency is super important with electric electric bikes exactly exactly that and and keeping the front wheel down so it doesn't do wheelies i mean my <laughs> my speed bike it, it will do a wheelie but you got to work at it to make it do a wheelie so it's not for the guy that wants to do wheelies it's for the guy that it actually is misnamed it should not be a street tracker it should be named canyon racer because that's what it likes to do is just race around canyons, left, right, like left, that. right. Nice. Nice. Well, you know, Mert, I, I love that you're, you you just don't stop, and you've already got your thing about the next thing. And I'd love to see oh, your There's designs. always another page, isn't there? There is. I'd love to see your designs <laughs> yeah. in electric. Yeah, I've only done design. 80 of them so far. <laughs> Cool. <laughs> Got plenty more, more to go. Do you, do you guys have any uh, final questions for Mert before we let him go? No, I think I, I just want to say, Mert, I mean, thank you so much for just being this visionary in the industry for as long as you have and continuing to do what you do. I mean, it's it's obvious that well, you poor. love I had to. what you do. <laughs> <laughs> do you do anything when you're starving? Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> Necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah, for yeah sure I, mean, I just want to say uh, thanks for making the timer. It's a treat. I, you know, we met briefly. You probably don't remember a few years ago. Talked about the prosthetics down at the Quail, and you were just as sincere and genuinely a nice person then. Um, 
you know, on a, at three yeah, well, o'clock in the prosthetic afternoon. Prosthetic business is kind of taking another sure page now. too. I'll jump in on that one. Yeah. I'm giving this business to to uh, my uh, son, Joe, and my stepson, Tim. Uh, they're going to be running the business in the future. I'm thinking a year or so for it to, you know, transition, but uh, uh, they have the energy. They want to promote it and they want to move ahead. And I'm, I'm tired of doing trade shows and the like. That is and here's great the other, news. The other thing I thought that, that spoke right. to, to Mer, you and your, your your philosophy, so to speak, is you go to the webpage for the prosthetics and you should everywhere, just your webpage, I'll say, prosthetics are there. And if you want to, it has like a, I think a tab for products. Like, oh, you want to buy like a hat or something. And when you click on it, it's a way to donate uh, mm-hmm. to the organization, which I think is brilliant because you do give, <laughs> you know, things away to Walter Reed uh, Hospital. I know that. Um, so yeah, I think it's great. So check out the webpage, uh, donate. Um, it's a it's really cool stuff you're doing. Yeah, uh, for a long time, Hanger was my biggest uh, customer, but Hanger is at the moment now. But I'm uh, with Joe and Tim jumping in there and doing some promotion. Why? Uh, hopefully, we'll get some more distributors because you know this this is just changes these kids' lives. I mean, it puts them back on in the world again, and they can just do whatever they want. Yeah, and, and just so people, that, that's so- absolutely awesome. Awesome, because as a writer, oh, you're breaking up. As a writer, to have an accident where I lost. Oh, sorry. Yeah, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Well, yeah, no, I know what you're saying. Yeah, just to be a writer who's lost an arm and be given the ability to ride back, I think that is a, an amazing gift. And I just want oh, to let people know you can go to mertlowell.com yeah. and you can find out more about Mert, his history, and also find the link to his prosthetics and uh, learn more yeah, about that's, that. That's org. yeah. And you can even donate if you'd like to help out with that because it is a great cause. And I'm glad to hear that the next generation is going to be continuing with that. Well, you know, I've learned, I've gained some new heroes from this prosthetic business. I've got uh, three people in particular. Uh, I'll take uh, one that's, uh, well, uh, 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 well, there's two guys, there's a girl. And oh, Greta right. that was born without a hand mm-hmm. and, and a guy that Jake, they were both born without hands and it made them competitive in their sport. But I think my biggest hero at the moment is, is this guy named Shane Cahill. Mm-hmm. He lives in San Diego. He um, is a, was a window washer and he got his uh, extension poles caught in the high tension wires and it electrocuted him. Mm-hmm. Uh, to save his life, they had to remove both left and right hands. They're both gone. Oh. And you know what he does now? He finishes on the podium in bicycle races. Wow. That's and awesome. I think uh, the woman, is that Greta Nemanos? Yes. Yes. Yeah, she's I racing in the <laughs> para, yeah. Paralympics. So that's, it's yeah. really cool. You know what? And Jake McCulloch. You, well, you know, I, I just to jump in on the stories, because, you know, the other one I think was like, I, I think some of your greatest victories may have come when you're not even on two wheels. But the young man who wanted to ride bikes with his friends, couldn't keep up, created self-esteem issues at a young age. See, see here's about you. They call you up. Next thing you know, he has a prosthetic arm um, and he goes from hiding in the shadows to being on the podium. Uh, oh, you, you know the Jake McCulloch story then, apparently. I do. Yeah, this I was do know the story. This was born without a hand. And he was trying to uh, ride motocross in the Chicago area. And uh, he was a back marker because he's doing it all with one arm. And uh, so he saw a film that I did with Chris Dreyer. And he, his dad called me and he said, hey, we want to try one of those hands. So I, I sent him a hand. And in eight months, he was on the podium. 
and it completely turned his life around because the kids were going, you know, you know, how you doing today, Gimpy, and just making him feel real bad when, and so it became real withdrawn. And uh, once he just got on the podium, it just like turned the, the light on for him, and he's now a motivational speaker for Shriners. That's amazing. From a guy that was hiding in the closet. That's great. So what what do you want your legacy to be? Do you think it's going to be Mer's hands? <laughs> I don't know, baby. I'll come up with something. <laughs> He's not done awesome. yet. Keep at it. Keep going. <laughs> I love it, Mert. Well, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on our, our show. And um, if you didn't know, this is our episode 398. We are um, on the road to 400. And I really wanted to get, uh, you know, big names in motorcycling, really accomplished people with a great story. And, and, you are one of the, the top names I could think of because you do have this whole story. And what I especially love is the story about after racing. And there's so much to talk about there. So thank you for sharing your story with us. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate being able to talk with you folks. It's been no, a pleasure. No problem at all. So um, go to mertlaw.com or mertshands.org and you can find out more about what he's doing. Mert, I'm going to let you go. You've been so nice to, to be with us tonight. Thank you very much. Yeah, I got to go catch up with my football game go, now. Got to go watch the football. <laughs> All right. I'll, right. I'll, I'll knock you out of here so you don't have to figure out how to get out. Thanks very much for joining us. Okay. Thank All you, guys. Right. Bye. See you later. Right. Take care. Ciao, Mark. Be well. What a cool guy, huh? Wow. That is awesome. What do you think, Bagel? Yeah. That was really, really cool. Yeah, because I've I've heard about his the work he's done with prosthetic hands before, mm -hmm. and 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 just to 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 hear more about how uh, I guess how that's 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 going, and um, <clears throat> you know that 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 he's just you know helping people out with you know who who otherwise would not be able to ride. I mean that's that is just that's so heartwarming and and really just incredibly cool. Right. And the yeah. thing I love, and there's the, the common thread in uh, like our recent guests with like Eric Buell is the passion and the love of all things two wheels that then gets carried into innovating and designing and helping others and making things better and making our motorcycles better through it. I love it. And in, yeah, with right. Mer mountain biking. Yeah. I mean, isn't that crazy? He has the patent on the first mountain bike frame. Yeah. Wow. I had no the idea. The, the clunker. I know. I, yeah. I remember my clunker. <laughs> I'll so, bet you do. <laughs> so I think we have some time to read some emails. Um, Bagel, I sent one to you. Did you get it? I did. So uh, there's a couple. I will read one here. Um and this one is, let's see, this one, oh, I'm not sure, Emma, which one did I, oh, I sent you that one, okay, and uh, Bagel, I think I sent you, did I send you the project? This is about the Beagle podcast. Yes, number yeah. 400, why don't you go ahead and read that one? Okay, so this email is from Steve Singer, <clears throat> and Steve writes, wow, you guys interviewed Eric Buell, the man himself. This was probably the best podcast I have listened yeah. to yet. Thank you. Yeah. I am the proud owner of a 1998 Buell S3T. 
This is the sport touring version. It came with upright bars and hard bags. I found it on Craigslist in 2008. It had about 50,000 miles on it. I wasn't planning on buying it, but took it for a test drive out, out of curiosity. I fell in love with it and bought it on the spot. It makes a glorious sound with tremendous torque and low-end low grunt that makes driving out of corners a blast. Superb handling. It cruises at highway speeds in a mellow, relaxed style. You don't shift into fifth until 50 or 55 miles an hour. It is our favorite bike to take on two up Take, take on a two-up, 200-mile round trip to the Mississippi River, all on Wisconsin back roads. It now has 70,000 miles. I have a Tiger 800 and an air-cooled Thruxton, but the Buell is my favorite. <clears throat> the Triumphs just run and run with minimal maintenance, <clears throat> but the Buell must be engaged and constantly needs work done. Mm -hmm like fork seals, rebuilding the rear shock, motor mounts braking, don't do wheelies, uh, <laughs> wheel bearings, stuff vibrating loose, etc., etc. The basic bike and engine have been very reliable. It's simple enough that us mediocre home mechanics can keep it up, keep, can keep it on the road. When I have an issue I don't want to tackle, I have a nationally known Buell mechanic nearby, nice. Agard Moto Foundry of Janesville, Wisconsin. I am told that Chuck Agard has purchased the entire parts inventory of EBR bikes and comes highly recommended. Oh, nice. And this is maybe Emma could do a Buell history hole sometime. Well, well like, we just had <laughs> Eric did this. I would say Eric that did his own history up. hole. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> That's but great. I'm, I'm, yeah. Thanks, Steve. So, hey, um, Hey, what's your name? Uh, Jim. Remember our friend Dan at the uh, Broken Arrow Horse Camp in Custer? Oh, yeah, man. That that place, that dude had a cool setup. And he, what a nice guy. Right. And Emma, I think you'll remember him because he had emailed us about he had just gotten a PC-800 and he wanted to make it cool and he was looking for good ideas. Remember that? Yeah, that's right. Uh -huh. I, so, and I told him it was perfect as it was and he should leave it well alone. So <laughs> we have an update. Oh. Yeah. So he says, hey, uh, hey, everyone, Daniel from Broken Arrow Campground here. I wanted to update you on the PC-800 I bought. If you remember, I wrote in and asked how to make it kind of cool. Well, that got a good laugh from the misfits, and Emma gave me some great advice as I was looking forward to traveling to Texas and pick it up. Well, I finally made it to Texas to pick it up at my friend's house. Right away, I realized it would never be kind of cool or any other version of cool. Although it was a running bike and I only paid 500 for it, it what? is it is definitely not my style. It will not go well in my stable next to the Valkyrie and Yamaha Raider. But luckily for me, another friend in Houston who is down on his luck and loves motorcycles, and he does not have a bike at this time. So I called him and told him about the bike and said it was his for free. That made what? a poor man so happy. We met wow. up and I gave him the bike. It was an Holy early cow. Christmas present and most likely the only gift he would receive this year. And the man I bought it from, who has since passed away, just asked me to write a $500 checkout to charity. So with that bike, we helped out his charity and made another man happy. I guess it was a win-win for everyone, but mostly me for now that I don't have to look at that thing ever again. <laughs> 
Oh. <laughs> uh, Andy got a writing partner out of it, so it's a triple yeah. whammy. Says keep up the great work. Good luck, Emma, on the new venture. I'll be following along and hope to get out there and visit. And if you're in the Black Hills, stop in. And uh, he says, oh, when you guys were here at my camp, I showed you my 1978 KZ650 project. It is done and looks great. I'm on to my next project. What do you think uh, between a 1982 Honda Nighthawk 450 or a 91 Suzuki VX800? And I know oh, what VX. my vote is. No, my vote's the Nighthawk 450. I like oh, those good bikes. Oh, Lord, no. The VX800's an absolutely marvelous bike. I, I have a thing for the Nighthawk 450s. I think it's a, a cool-looking little bike. I think it's a perfect-sized bike for, for new riders, too. And it's got style. Yeah, they are quite stylish. But, you know, I mean, the thing is with, with Pacific Coast, the PC800s, you can see them in pictures you can even see them on video nothing quite prepares you for actually seeing one in the flesh when you you know when you actually especially the gen ones in the pearl white it is quite a polarizing vehicle <laughs> you can say that i think they're great but that's i do me. as well i think i think it's the most marvelous creation but it, it really does. It has this reaction. You know, when people see them for the first time, it's like, oh, I wasn't expecting I... that. I remember when I, re <laughs> I remember when Kathy first saw mine, she came out into the garage and she goes, oh. <laughs> when I saw you well, pull up, I, th I thought I could buy an ice cream cone from you. Right, exactly. But she just, oh. And I said, well, what's that meant to mean? She said, well, I didn't expect it to look like that and turned around and walked away. And she never told me whether that was good or bad. It, just, oh, it, it did resemble a nautical theme. I still maintain that had I continued with the development of mine, it would have ended up with a little wooden mast on it with pennants <laughs> flying. And then, you know, a ship's wheel. Yeah, a ship's a wheel instead of, instead of handlebars. Oh, ahoy, mate. Bell behind the windshield. Ding, 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 ding. Yes, exactly. No, I think it's, I, you know, Liza, I've got to be honest with you. I think it's more yacht club than pirate. <laughs> yes. You know, it's, it's, more, it's, it's more martinis on the poop deck. <laughs> Uh, more like yacht rock radio yes exactly <laughs> oh my gosh emma you got an email there to read i do so um as you're well aware i'm doing everything on my phone mm -hmm. so here we go so i have this this um this email from matt from matt hey matt and hey, hello matt. it's and um, hello miss fitz it's matt Karan from oregon again yes Hey. Well, last email, I said I was going to sell the Versus 650. Mm -hmm. Well, I love it too much. And it's Oregon in December. So it's not. It's a good time to buy, but not sell bikes. And I'll agree with you there, Matt. Yeah. So for now, it's staying along with the DRZ 400S mm -hmm. that he just got some supermoto wheels for. All the dank nooners. What is a dank nooner? <laughs> What is a dank nooner? Where's knock when you need them? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway. Oh, I think I think he's talking about a wheelie. Mm-hmm. Twelve o'clock. Oh, 
<laughs> you know, this is modern speak. I don't do the modern speak. Yeah. So, um, it's a wheelie, dear. Yes, oh, good oh. Um, my question is for Emma. Oh, that's me. Um, oh, my blimey. Two, my 2008 versus <laughs> 650 just rolled over 30 grand. Um, I bought it with 18,000, and according to the service schedule, it's um, due for a valve clearance check and just learned. Um, I have a set of feeler gauges, and I'm confident in my mechanical abilities, but this job scares me a bit. Now, the bike does have a bit of hesitation on hot starts, but other than that, it's running great. My question is, should I take it to the dealership to do this job, or is it something I can do at home? Do you have any tips? Um, all the love from wet and cold Oregon. Um, Matt Curran. You know, it strikes me that um, when he says all the love from wet and cold Oregon, you know, it's like a dog's nose. You can always tell when a dog loves you because it has a wet and cold nose. Isn't that what they say? Um Anyway, P.S. Oh, the current up the back bike is a Ducati Hyperstrada. That's a good choice. Nice. Um, so look, on to valve clearances, because um, back in the old days, back in the really old days, valve clearance was basically screw thread and a lock nut and, you know, it. and then with the advent of twin cams and that was basically if you had a single cam engine you had to have some mechanical means of getting the open and shut movement of the camshaft out to the valves so you had some mechanical arm which meant you had a mechanical adjustment well you know mid late 70s the twin cams came in and and then it became very fashionable just to have the cam sitting on top of the valve and the early bikes, like the Suzuki GSs and the um, Kawasaki KZs, had adjustment shims. Now, a shim is basically a disc of a very specific thickness. And you can buy all different ones to adjust your valve clearance. And it sat on top of what was called the bucket. And it was called the bucket because it looks like an upside down bucket. It goes over the valve spring, it opens and shuts the valve, and it had a cup in the top, you put your shim in it, Bob's your uncle. And you had this tool that was like a little crescent, you push down the bucket, pull the old shim out, put the new one in, you're done. The industry has been going away from that lately. And the Versus is like many other bikes. It's got very, very small diameter shims, and they live under the buckets. What does this mean? It means you've got to pull the cams out. Now, pulling cams out is definitely not a job for beginners. It's quite easy to do, but there are things you absolutely make have to make certain of you need to make certain of the relationship between the camshaft and the crankshaft and be absolutely cocksure that you understand the marks now usually on a four-cylinder bike you set it up to top dead center 
which will be top the pistons will be at the top of their travel at one and four four cylinder bikes always work the same way one and four work together and then two and three work together they're doing different things but they go up and down together so you set it at top dead center and then your marks line up on the camshaft sprocket you pull the sprockets out uh, you pull the cams out and then lift the bucket change the shim put it back in the twin usually set it up on top dead center on the right cylinder and so on the versus oh gosh it's been so long since i did a versus i think there are marks on the left hand side and there's a plug so you pull out the plug on the crankcase, you turn it over, you line up the marks, and then look at the marks on the sprocket. But it's vital that you understand that. So basically, if you want to do the valve clearances, some of the tools you're going to need is you'll need a scratch pad to mark your um, position of the uh, valves. You're going to need um, a feeler gauge so you can measure the clearance. And... The Versys, like every other bike, has a minimum and maximum clearance. I always set everything to maximum because generally valves don't, valve clearances don't get bigger. They get smaller as the valves recede into the head. So um, what you're basically going to do is you're going to lift the cam cover off, set the left cylinder up at top dead center, measure the clearances, write them down on your scratch pad, turn it to top to center on the right, measure the clearances, put them down in your scratch pad. Then if they need adjustment, you pull off the cam chain tensioner, take the camshafts out and individually take each bucket out one at a time, measure the shim that's in it, figure out the new shim size, put the new shim in, put the bucket back in and then move to the next valve and do all eight of them I, at the same time. I would like to put point out that she... In, put your chicantane tensioner back in, you're down the road. It sounds more complex than it is. It's about a shop will charge you on a twin cylinder bike three hours. It's a three-hour job. Emma, I'd like to point out that you just said, oh, it's been a while. I'm not sure if I remember. And then you went step by step by memory. <laughs> right. Well, you know, this is just how my brain works. I know. But you've got to be clean. You've got to understand that you're bolting camshafts down with the caps. And some of the main gotchas I've seen, the biggest gotcha, of course, is doing the cam timing wrong. You absolutely, I, I keep on saying this again and again, understand the cam timing of your engine. I cannot stress that highly enough. The other main gotcha is wrenching down on the camshaft caps and stripping the threads, either by not doing them equally and bringing them down gradually or just over tightening them remember it's only an m6 bolt you know that's only about i think eight foot pounds it's not much 
Sounds um, like you're saying you should take it to a shop. <laughs> well, you know, I tell you what I I tell you what I'd do. I think what I'd do, because he's obviously mechanically adept, it's not gonna do him any harm to actually pull the cam sh- the cam cover off and measure the clearances. Mm-hmm. And if they need adjustment, he's already seen what's going on in there. He can decide whether he wants to to make the adjustment knowing that, what he's looking at in the engine. And he can make that decision then. And if he wants to take it to a shop, he can put the, the cam cover back on. And then, boom, off he goes again. You know, I'd attempt it, but you've got to be clean. Take your time. Keep distractions to a minimum. Um, it's a vital part of it. What I can tell you about versus 650s is they are heavy on plugs. So if he's got a hesitation problem when it's hot, um, check your plugs. I think at 30,000, it should have at least had one set of plugs in, maybe more. So um, a new, brand new set of good quality, properly gapped plugs might get you running well again you know emma remember we took the uh, fz plugs out at 45 plus thousand miles and they had looked like they had mohawks <laughs> yeah exactly they were just <laughs> trashed but i was dealing with you know a lot of hesitation when the bike was warm so there right, you go you matt know, change the plugs and then take it to the shop and have the valves done <laughs> yeah you know it's it's you have a beer I, no i think i think he should check the valve clearances himself and then when he's in there looking at the job he can decide whether he wants to do it or not mm-hmm. but remember matt you're going to be pulling the cam chain tensioner off and you've got to understand <clears throat> the cam timing if you're happy with both of those give it a whirl there you go. All right. I got one last email and I believe everyone here is mentioned. Oh, this is a good oh. one. Yeah. I like this one. Uh, this one is from our friend, Mike. He says, thank you so much for the chance to be a small part of the show a couple times last month. It was a privilege to meet Debbie Lawler virtually and to hear her story of her record setting career. There's no question in my mind. Motorcycle jumpers are certifiably nuts, but what an incredible talent. She was also a great example of the way your podcast exposes us to different niches niches of the industry that we might not otherwise see. It seems every guest and member of the Misfits brings a different kind of experience and expertise to the table. As a sport touring rider, dirt bikes and scooters were completely foreign to me, but Jim and Bagel have convinced me that I need to give them a try. What has been most surprising to me has been the fact that Miss Emma has actually made the mechanical side of motorcycles so interesting to me. She has a wealth of knowledge, and I wish her history holes were a weekly feature. Previously, I've been happy to simply let the experts work on my bike. As a direct result of your podcast, I am actually taking the plunge and learning how to do a bit of wrenching myself. Good on you. He says, Mm -hmm. on... Episode 394, I had the opportunity to pick the brains of several of your listeners about where to begin my mechanical journey. 
There were some great suggestions and lots of encouragement. Peter suggested just going for it. Mike told me to go from failure to failure with enthusiasm. (laughs) Mostly prophetically, they said now that I have opened myself up to the idea of working on bikes, a project would present itself. And it turns out they were right. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's wintertime. Yeah. He says, just a couple of days after the show, I was speaking with one other writer in my family, my brother-in-law. Over a decade ago, he rode a Buell Blast from San Francisco up to Alaska via British Columbia and then back home across the country to New York. Shortly after that ride, he took a job in Canada, and that bike has been sitting in my father-in-law's garage completely unridden ever since. Because my wife and I recently moved, we now have room for a second motorcycle. At the end of the year, I will be inheriting the long-ignored Blast. Seems like an ideal bike to cut my teeth on. It was designed to be simple to maintain, and the engine only has one cylinder for me to worry about. I especially appreciated the fact that Eric Buell's interview last week included a couple of suggestions on where parts can be found. Besides the mechanical know-how that I hope to gain, there are times when I'm in the mood for something smaller and lighter than my BMW R1200RT. Once everything is up and running, the Blast 500cc engine should allow me to have a lot of fun on the back roads of the Missouri Ozarks while making speeding tickets a little less likely. I will keep you posted and send you some pictures as things develop. In the meantime, thank you again for a wonderful podcast and for an even better community of riders. I appreciate the encouragement that you provide for people like me to try new things in the motorcycle world. And he says, best wishes to Emma on her new adventure. I hope to be able to visit both her shop and the recycle garage someday. However, unlikely my iron butted brother-in-law, I am probably not going to ride that far on a 500 CC thumper. That's why bikes <laughs> like the RT were invented. Isn't that a great email that. from Mike? That's awesome. That is just great. Can't do an iron. It doesn't mean you can't do an iron butt either. <laughs> Well, you know, I, 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 we have right here in the Misfits, right here this evening, we have a Buell Blast expert. And it ain't me. Yeah. Oh. I've, I've been intimate with the Buell yeah. I'll bet you have bagel, you dirty bastard. You need, since, since we put out the movie yeah. Motosexual, you need to be careful using intimate and with motorcycles. It may mean something else. I, say. I diddled it. Oh, What's wrong my, with you people? Oh my god! <laughs> Good lord! Oh my god! <laughs> but uh, but to but to his to his point about uh, the uh, parts availability, as uh, our friend Steve had emailed us earlier, mm-hmm. Chuck Agard uh, of Motor Foundry in Janesville, Wisconsin, has a great parts stash apparently, and yeah. also uh, St. Paul Harley Davidson has a lot of parts for the Buell Blast, which is who I tapped uh, for parts for my friend's uh, blast when I was working on it. Well, there you go. And yep. I think that brings us to a close. So what do you guys think? Mart Lal, not too bad, huh? Uh, it was cool awesome. Kidding? Guy's do, amazing. Do you, he, what he's done for motorcycling is hard to, to describe. I know. I mean, Eric Buell and then Mert Lal, is there any way I can top it next week? I think mm-hmm. you can. I Maybe they'll tie. I bet it'll tie. I'm going to give you a clue. Next week's guest is a twofer and they are married Ooh, that's a big hit (laughs) 
That's a big uh-huh. no. You play 20 questions about who it is? Nope. Ah. Nope. Do they hold a land speed record? <laughs> oh, good question. Not answering any Ooh. more questions. <laughs> Just saying. It's a twofer, mm. and they're married, and I'm pretty excited. Cool. And we'll have a lot to talk about. Fantastic. I'm excited, too. So, you guys, uh, I know we're we're all, you know, we're in lockdown here. How are you guys handling it there? Uh, me, I'm just kind of still getting settled in and taking care of things around the house and focusing on that right now. Um, reorganizing the shop and stuff like that. So I got, I have plenty to keep myself busy. That's, that seems to be filling, filling in the, uh, filling in the gaps for me. Yeah, I'm, I, I've been talking with Jim, you know, like we said earlier about, um, deciding not to do the iron, but I'm on the fence about riding at all or going dirt biking, even though, um, Hollister Hills is open. They closed the camping, but the dirt biking is open and I'm on the fence. Like, is that the responsible thing to do? And I'm trying to find that balance about getting out and riding just to be sane. But like I said, dialing it back and taking it easy. Yeah. The same conversation we had in the springtime is, you know, it's, you know, it's not, it's not about getting sick so much, you know, it's, it's more about, you know, when you show up at the hospital, are you, are you going to have a bed to to be in or are you going to displace someone, you know, that may have a life threatening illness? So, um, I I think, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to talk over you, Jim, but it, it, it's worth noting that here in California, you know, the reason that we're, we're back in lockdown now, it's a direct correlation with the amount of beds that are available in hospital. And, yep. you know, hospitals have achieved critical mass here in Monterey County, in Santa Cruz County, and all over San Francisco. So that's basically why we're going back into lockdown. So that dovetails into the ratchet it back if you're out and about on your bike or... Um, Giving it the beams in your El Camino. <laughs> <laughs> but thankfully yeah. it is winter time, so it's project time. So I think I think most of us have some sort of a project we're kicking around at the moment. Bagel might have seven or eight. But uh, you know, so I think maybe it's just a yeah. time to be safe, you know, stick close to home, you know, do the motorcycle wrenching project until things get sorted out a little bit. Yeah. Well, and if, if you're gonna ride, please ride safe. And one thing well, you should do that anyway, darling. Sure. One thing I will recommend, you know, I haven't I haven't recommended this in a while. Um, but it being, you know, Christmas coming up and all, you know, we have mugs and shirts for sale. You can get a Miss Emma what? or a naked yeah, you can gym. Get a mug with me on. Yeah. And and I just want to remind people that we do have a Zazzle store where you can get a lot of uh, cool stuff, a lot of designs there. Uh, you can just Google Recycle Garage and Zazzle, and our page will come up. And, and as uh, a reminder, you do have to take off your child filters to get your <laughs> your Naked Gym coffee mug. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't come up unless you have hit the secret button. And T-shirt. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! No, so, and I mean that's interesting because they, re- I think Zazzle regard me being in bed with a motorcycle as very child friendly. Yeah, exactly. Not, Jim. <laughs> yeah, well, here's the picture. You tell me. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that at all. That's Nothing the biggest censored bar you've seen in your life. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. Well, you know, um, you guys stay safe, stay sane, and uh, we're going to have to figure out what to do in the next few weeks um, to keep ourselves occupied. But Bagel, you you stay safe up there as well, and uh, yeah. please don't send us any more rain. We've had a I, day and a half of rain, and that's about enough for us. It, it's yeah, there's plenty. I don't like this Oregon weather. We're, we're filled up for the year now. What? What do you want to? What do you want to catch on fire again? I know <laughs> we're gonna be filled up with mud to the ears here if the rain doesn't rain. slow down. Yeah, yeah, man. Well, you guys hang tight. Um, thank you to all of our listeners for sticking with us. I hope you enjoyed this too. Thank you for everyone who's sending the emails. Keep them coming. We love them. And just remember, if if yours isn't read on air, it still is read. And a lot of them I send on to like Bagel or to Emma if it's something that I know that they'll really enjoy reading. So keep sending those emails. We appreciate it. Also, suggestions of upcoming guests. Uh, we're up for it. So send us anything. Um, any other announcements we got to make? No, none. Have, um, happy holidays. Happy Hanukkah. Happy, happy Christmas, Kwanzaa. All Festivus. the things. Festivus. And uh, thank you very much. So on that note, let's get out of here. This is Liza. Bagel. Emma Dolly. Make it Jim, son. And we're out of here. Cool, cool, cool. cool.